not sure if you are aware of this, perhaps you are, but the opening line of the hymn, Abide With Me, comes from Luke chapter 24, verse 29. This is the passage where Jesus appears to two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus, and Luke tells us that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interprets for them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And as they near the village, the disciples strongly urge him, saying, and I quote from the old King James, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. Friends, I hope you can see uh, both from the hymn and from scripture that God's presence is a relational presence. It transforms the way we read the scriptures the way we think and act and feel. It spurs us on to greater faith and godliness. That's why the hymn writer says, I need thy presence every passing hour. Praise God that Jesus abides with us through his Holy Spirit. And his spirit empowers our Christian walk as we trust in his word. Now the prophet Haggai had a similar message for God's people. He wanted them to see how important it was to build God's temple so that God's presence in their midst would not only further his redemptive plan, but would also bless them and ultimately lead to blessing for all peoples. This morning as we begin a new sermon series, let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to the Old Testament book of Haggai. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi these are the post-exilic prophets. These were men who spoke God's word to the people of Israel after the exile, after they had returned back to their land. You can find Haggai just before Zechariah in your Bible. And he's referred to as one of the minor prophets. Now, the term minor doesn't mean that Haggai was underage or that he was a tiny man or that his ministry was unimportant. Uh, it's merely indicative of the size of his book. It's a small book. He's a minor prophet. So please look, at, look with me at Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 to 15. And let's ask the Lord for his help as we approach his word. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would now open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. May we not put our trust in our own understanding, but be held captive to the word of Christ. Lord, we ask that you would do a work of grace in our hearts, so that we would delight in what you delight in, and seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's one of those stories that make you scratch your head in disbelief. When New Jersey teacher Marie Murphy received a phone call telling her that her house was on fire, she promptly dropped everything and rushed to the scene. And to everyone's shock, she ran into the burning building. She was determined to save her most prized possession. And not even a blazing inferno was going to stand in her way. Now, what do you think? was so important 
that she would risk her life to salvage. Turns out that it was her season baseball tickets. Tickets to a game. It was only later that she realized how foolish her rescue mission had been because the baseball authorities told her that they would have gladly reprinted the tickets had they burned in the fire. Now it's easy to shake our heads in dismay when we hear of ridiculous stories like these. I mean, after all, the, the choice seems simple, tickets or your life. You would think that a sensible person in that situation would choose their life. But here was a case of misplaced priorities, of disordered loves. Someone who did not stop to consider what was more important before acting. But friends, let me ask you this. What about us? As God's people, do we always get our priorities right? Beloved, do you regularly consider your ways before the Lord? Are you mindful that God's Spirit abides in you and you live your entire life Coram Deo, or in his presence, before his face, under his sovereign power and authority. But remember this, any kind of heartfelt examination ought to begin by first recognizing who our God is and what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. In this moment, we must remember that our God cares for us. This is his attitude. This is his posture towards us. He cares for us and we are where we are because he has preserved us. And so the first thing I want you to note in this passage is care. Care. God's preserving care. This is something we can easily miss if you go over verse 1 too quickly. We miss it because it's not explicitly mentioned in the text. Look at verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Lots of historical data there. Friends, scripture records historical data for us, not merely to convince us, of its factual nature, but it's also for us to read theologically, to see the Lord's hand at work. Now, when we work through these dates historically, we find ourselves in the year 520 BC, August 29th to be exact. King Darius is on the throne. It's his second year, we are told. This is Darius the Great, not Darius the Mede that Daniel knew. And at this point, the people of Israel are back in Jerusalem after a long period of captivity in Babylon. If you remember, God had judged the nation of Israel for their rebellion and idolatry. And he used the nation of Babylon to carry out his judgment. Solomon's temple was destroyed. The city of Jerusalem was burned to the ground. Israel no longer had, king, had a king or land or even a temple. They were humiliated and carried off into exile. And yet, 
God did not abandon his people because of the promises he had made to their forefathers. And so through the prophets, along with words of judgment and warning, the Lord also spoke words of comfort and hope. And he told them that one day he would restore his people. He would bring them from afar. He would bring them back to their land. He would deal with their sinful hearts and once again dwell in the midst of his people. He also promised them that a Davidic king would reign over his people and that he would establish an everlasting kingdom. While they were still in exile, God spoke to his people through the prophet Ezekiel and told them that though his glory had left the temple, a day was coming when he would establish a new covenant with them. He was going to give them new hearts and he would put his spirit within them and dwell in them in a way that they had not known earlier. God would act in a miraculous way among his rebellious people who were spiritually dead and he would make them come alive. And somehow he was going to do all of this by bringing them back from exile and dwelling in his temple in a far more glorious way. And so in keeping with all those promises, God not only preserved a people in Babylon, but he also raised up the Persians to overthrow Babylon. And when that happened, the Lord moved in the heart of the Persian king Cyrus, who then permitted the Jews to return to Jerusalem so that they could rebuild the temple. So the first wave of exiles returned to the land led by a man named, you can see his name in the text, Zerubbabel. And that happened in 538 BC. Now, the repatriated exiles began well. If you remember the book of Daniel, not everyone left. Um, a lot of them stayed back. But the first wave came in 538 BC and they began well. They, began, they built an altar. They laid the foundation of the temple. You can read about that in the book of Ezra. But they soon encountered some opposition from the locals. Uh, the book of Ezra tells us that everything finally came to a standstill and it stayed that way for many years, 15 plus years. It stayed that way. No one was doing anything until the second year of the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. And so it's the second year now and it's into this situation for the first time after the exile, God speaks. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Now we don't know a lot about Haggai apart from the fact that his name means festal. Perhaps he was born on one of the holy festivals or feast days of Israel. It's also likely that Haggai was an old man. So if you look at chapter 2, uh, verse 3, when Haggai asks if the people had seen Solomon's temple, it's very possible that he himself had, had seen it. So the fact that these exiles are back in the land is evidence of the Lord's care, his preserving power. But that's not all. God had preserved specific people to carry forward his purposes. When Nebuchadnezzar brought the first captives into exiles, Daniel chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that he was after the royal seed. He was after the royal seed. Friends, the story of redemption, the, the coming of Jesus, is the story of promised seed. 
God made a promise to Adam that the seed of the woman would deal with the problem of sin and would reverse the fall. This seed or offspring is the seed of Abraham. He's also the offspring of Israel, particularly of the tribe of Judah. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a covenant with David that he would establish the throne of his seed, his offspring forever. There is one who will come from the royal line of David and he will set up an everlasting kingdom. This is the anointed one, the, the Messiah who will save his people from their sins. And Nebuchadnezzar was after that royal seed. You remember how he tried to assimilate uh, those men from Judah into Babylon? It, it looked like a typical Babylonian assimilation program, but it was actually something more sinister and diabolically diabolical this was an attack against the seed of the woman by the seed of the serpent and yet surprisingly remarkably we see a person named Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel he is from the line of David his name Zerah and Babel means the seed of Babylon which means he was born in captivity. God preserved the Davidic seed from which his Messiah would come. So even though Darius was on the throne, God was carrying out his redemptive purposes for his people by his sovereign care and, and power and authority. And beloved, this is something each one of us individually and, and corporately, all of us as a body, should remember. Even when things are not going in the way that we would like it to go or be, remember God is always carrying out his good purposes for his people. Week after week, month after month, year after year. As we hear God's word, we ought to be reminded of how gracious he has been to us. How gracious he has been to us. Jesus said this about his sheep. He said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. God cares for his people and he preserves his people. Now Haggai brings God's word to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel and Joshua the high priest. Even Joshua is the son of Jehozadak, whose ancestry can be traced back to Aaron, the high priest. So both these men were the Persian-appointed civil and religious authorities over the land. And even though Persia was in power, right, majestic, amazing, powerful, impressive, and you have Zerubbabel, who's not king, he's just governor of a small district. And Joshua is a high priest without a temple, right? But just the very mention of their names is meant to bring to mind Israelite royalty and the Levitical priesthood prior to exile. So these leaders represented an important link to their community's past. And the word of the Lord comes to them on the first day of the sixth month. This time, according to the Israelite calendar, 
coincides with the end of summer and the beginning of a new moon festival. This, is, this would be uh, a time when, when burnt offerings and sacrifices would be, would be made at the temple. But there was no temple because the construction had come to a halt. And the Lord was greatly displeased with this response to his preserving grace, his preserving care. And so he charges his people with misplaced priorities. And that brings us to our second point. We see a charge. We see care and now we see a charge. The Lord charges his people. He pulls them up as it were and puts them on trial. Look at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts. You know that phrase the Lord of hosts appears 14 times in the book of Haggai. 14 times. And that tells you that this is not the word of a stranger. The Lord is his covenant name. Yahweh is the covenant name of Israel's God. This is the one who redeemed them from Egypt. This is the one who sent them into exile. This is the one who brought them back from exile. He is the Lord of hosts. Hosts means the armies of heaven. He is the almighty one who rules over every power and all authority. This is his word. This word came to the people. So you see this expression, the Lord of hosts, would have reminded Haggai's audience of God's transcendence and control over all human affairs. You know, which is why it shows up so many times in this book. Beloved, we cannot let his word, we cannot let God's word fall on our ears lightly. There is no greater word, no word that is more authoritative and final than his. So it's not Persia who will define uh, the world's events. It's not Persia who will define or determine Israel's fate. But it's the word of the one who rules even the Persian Empire. And that's what these people needed to hear. Beloved, let me ask you this. When you read the Bible, when you read the word, do you read it as the word of the Lord of hosts? Do you let it bear down or weigh on you as the words of the sovereign of the universe? Or do you try to negotiate with it? Does his word expose you and call you to task? This is how the Lord indicts the returned exiles. Look at verse 2. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Did you catch that? These people, not my people, but these people say. Beloved, that is a sad tone of contempt and distance. Now, if you're a parent, you'll understand this. Fathers, have you ever come home after a, a long day's work only to be confronted by these words from your wife? Look at the mess your children made. Like my children, I thought we had these together. But you know that's not what she means. She's expressing her frustration and disappointment with the kids. And she's doing that by putting distance between herself and the children. The behavior of the children seems to be incompatible. It's out of step with who the mother is. Now in the Bible, 
God frequently expresses disdain for his people's behavior and he distances himself by using similar verbiage. These people. This people. So straight off the bat, Zerubbabel and Joshua, as they hear this, they're supposed to know, oh, something's wrong. So here's the charge, verse 2. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. We don't think it's the right time. Now, remember the work on the temple began 15 years ago, but it had stopped due to a variety of reasons. Local opposition, political instability, economic hardships. And so if you had asked them, they would not have been opposed to building the Lord's temple. They just didn't think it was the right time. It wasn't number one on their priority list. So if you had walked up to an Israelite during Haggai's day and, and if you had said, hey, I was just passing by your temple and it looks like you guys just gave up on the project. I mean, there's weeds and there's bushes growing up from the foundation. What's up with that? If you had asked them, you would have gotten an answer like this. They would have said, ah, yes, well, you know, given the current economic conditions, we think it's probably wise to put off the rebuilding of the temple until a more appropriate time. The problem with that reasoning is that God doesn't quite see it that way. That's the problem. Friends, when you take God's word and you work hard to apply it to your situation, that's acting wisely. You should never work backwards from your situation and decide whether God's word should be obeyed or not. And so God speaks again. And this time, he points out their misplaced priorities. Look at verses 3 to 4. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? God says, you want to talk about appropriate times? Let's talk about appropriate times. Friends, God is the one who ordains times and seasons and events. He is the one who gives meaning and significance to events by ordering history, including your history and my history, according to his plan. The Lord of hosts, he had ordained this very situation that his people were in. But for these people, it was not the right time. Not the appropriate time to obey God. You see, they had forgotten the most important lesson that God had wanted them to learn. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 to 3. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. How did he test them? Through hard providence, by ordaining difficult seasons. And he humbled you and he let you hunger. God let them hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know 
nor did your fathers know that he might make you know. What's the lesson? That man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So the point of hard providence, the point of hard providence, difficult situations in your lives, is not to give you the opportunity to decide whether or not it's the right time to obey the Lord. That's not the point of hard providence. The point of hard providence is to help you see what your real priorities are. To see what's in your heart. To see whether covenant loyalty to God outranks every other need or desire. In other words, hard providence is precisely for obedience. Hard providence is precisely for obedience. So God very sarcastically asked them, is it appropriate for you to be pouring your energies into your own houses while neglecting mine? He said, well, I was walking by and I saw your house. It was pretty nice. You had all these lovely wooden panels Looks like you spent a lot of money and time and effort on doing that. You sure it's the right time to do that? While my house lies in shambles? You see, it's, it's no small thing that the temple here is referred to as God's house. To not prioritize the house is to not prioritize the one who lives in that house. See, disregard and apathy for the house shows disrespect for the one who abides in it. And the temple is his dwelling place. Now we know that God is omnipresent. He is spirit. But he makes his presence known to his special people in a special way. The temple represented God's special presence among his people. This was the way that the, the nations would know that the God who redeemed Israel from Egypt and set them apart, this is how they would know that he dwelt in the midst of them. The Lord of hosts was no pagan identity. He was the one true God, the creator God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. And he would dwell in the midst of his people. But the great confusion, the great conundrum of the Old Testament was how can a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people. And that's why God prescribed a way in which his people could approach him in worship through an elaborate system of sacrifices and offerings. This was central to their corporate worship. So yes, there was a covenantal relationship with the Lord, but God's covenantal relationship was tied to the institutional reality of the temple by which his people could come they could draw near to him. In other words, all the liturgies and the sacrifices reminded the Jews of who God was and what he had done for them. So this had to do more with God's self-disclosure and his gracious communion with his people rather than him needing a place to stay. It was not like he needed that temple. Solomon, who built the first temple, knew that. Listen to 1 Kings 8, 27. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. 
you see God's presence and his glory in the temple signaled his unique relationship with his people and for his people that meant that they were to respond to his presence with faith with obedience with dedication with worship with sacrifices and so forth now as the new covenant people of god we don't worship in a physical temple we don't there is no holy building no sacred space that we must enter and this is because something changed the glory of god was made manifest in all its fullness in the person of jesus christ john tells us that the word became flesh and templed among us jesus referred to himself as the temple in john 2:21 the ultimate meeting place between god and man so you see the the point of the temple the temple and its elaborate system of sacrifices and priesthood all pointed forward to the ultimate sacrifice the ultimate high priest jesus christ who would pay the penalty for the sins of his people by offering himself the temple of his body as a substitute for sinners on that cross therefore the temple was significant because it was full of messianic hope full of messianic hope it pointed to christ the very essence and the purpose of the temple and when jesus the true temple came he died as a substitute on that wretched cross for all who would repent and believe in him he did this to save sinners to save sinners friend if i could summarize the message of the bible in three words it would be this god saves sinners and he does it through Jesus Christ the whole story of the bible is the unfolding of god's plan to do this scripture is concerned with telling us who this god is and how and why he does this see the bible tells us that we have all sinned we've all rebelled against god we we have set him aside he is not our first priority we've set him aside and we have turned to our own ways we have rebelled against his goodness and for that god stands over us in in judgment but the shocking good news is that god himself the one we have neglected the one we have rebelled against the one we have spurned he himself comes to save us in the person of his son the lord jesus christ so if you have never heard this i want you to know that there is no other way for you to be saved from god's judgment than to put your trust in Jesus Christ to put your trust in the one he himself has sent friend once again i want you to know that this is god's kindness towards you that god has ordained this day for you to be here this is god's kindness to you to be here to be able to hear these words of good news from my mouth about god's saving grace The Lord has ordained this day for you so don't take his kindness lightly. Acknowledge before him this morning that you are a sinner who rightly deserves his wrath. Turn away from your sins and put your trust in Jesus as your only savior and your only god. Repent 
and believe in this good news. Turn to him and you will be forgiven of all your sins and you will be reconciled to him. Friends, it's only through Christ we can enjoy God's presence. It's only through him we can have communion with the Father. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 19 to 22, that as a result of what Christ has done for us, we are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being that cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So this time, there is a temple, there is a cornerstone, there is a structure, but it's not a physical building, it's a people. In him, you also, Grace Church, you're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So brothers and sisters, because of the gospel, the church, the New Testament people of God, we are referred to as God's holy temple. God's Spirit abides in us. And we are called to offer up spiritual sacrifices of praise, of self-denial, and of obedience, both individually and corporately. We are to walk in obedience as a congregation. But for the Israelites, at that point in redemptive history, the physical temple was highly significant. This is how God would dwell in their midst. And so he told them, rebuild that temple. The restoration of the temple was vital to their well-being. So the question is, why did it not make it to the top of their priority list? Now let's think of their circumstances. There was opposition from the Samaritans and other groups. They frustrated their plans. There was also a, a persistent drought in the land. Why they even lacked basic amenities like food and drink. So perhaps the excuses were, well, we haven't heard a, a direct word from the Lord. We're waiting. We're waiting on the Lord. Or perhaps the, the, the Lord will miraculously provide a, a glorious temple like Ezekiel saw in his vision. But all these excuses did not impress the Lord. Yes, God is sovereign and faithful and he will bring his promises to pass. But he calls his people to obey his word. The Lord wants our obedience to be the means by which he accomplishes his purposes. To rebuild the temple was a covenant obligation and they were not acting in accordance with his will. A people who acted and argued in this way could not be called God's people but these people. Think about that for a minute. Beloved, when you put your priorities over God's, when you do not obey him, you're not behaving like a Christian. Your priorities reveal who you are. And here God was challenging their misplaced priorities. The people of God who have a saving, special saving relationship with him must first seek the kingdom of God and its righteousness. External circumstances should not change your priorities. When other things take precedence over God and his word, the Bible has a word for that sin. It's called idolatry. Idolatry. But what about those harsh economic conditions? 
What does God say about that? Well, look at verses 5 to 6. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Think carefully, he says. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. God turns their attention to what they were doing, just the regular everyday stuff of life. And here's what they had. Poor agricultural yield despite intense labor. That's discouraging, isn't it? They were eating but were never satisfied, drinking but always thirsty. Now what could be more frustrating than that? They had clothes but could not keep warm. What they earned vanished quickly. It's like putting cash in a pocket full of holes. You see, the Lord wanted them to stop and evaluate their state of affairs through the lens of his word because he wanted them to, to be reminded of something. But he doesn't leave them in the dark as to what to do. You see, their attitude dishonored him, but what would honor and please him would be their obedience. Look at verses 7 to 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. They were to go up into the mountains and, and bring down wood and build the house. Bear in mind, all the, the wood would have been burned up when the temple was destroyed, leaving a few stones. And remember, the land had rest for 70 years, so a lot of trees would have grown. So even in calling his people to account, the Lord is gracious to speak clearly to them and point them in the right direction. They were to build with the materials that were within their reach. And friends, it is here that we see the consequence and the relevance of the temple being clearly spelled out. Why were they to do this? So that, says the Lord, I may take pleasure in it. So that I may be glorified, he says. This is about God's honor and his pleasure and his glory. See, rebuilding the temple uh, would be a display of his honor and glory. Beloved, why do we prioritize the obedience of faith? Because it glorifies God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. God takes pleasure in our obedience because it flows out of a heart that is trusting in the finished work of his son. Brothers, in everything that we do, whether it's our jobs, whether it's in our financial giving, whether it's in showing hospitality, whether it concerns the counsel we give to one another, we ought to stop and consider this, is this something that the Lord would be pleased with? Was this done in faith in the gospel? But here's an important caveat as you think about how God interacts with these people. You see, we must understand that this is a unique time in redemptive history. God's people are in their land and a temple and a system of sacrifices and a priesthood is required to mediate God's holy presence. So they were expected to obey. If they, if they kept their covenant stipulations, God would have blessed them. If they 
disobeyed, he would met out his covenant curses. You see, the law, through God's word, the law exposed their sinfulness and revealed their inability to keep his word. In fact, that's what God wanted them to see as he described his situation, their situation in verse 6. So look at verse 6. You know, if you had, if you had a godless worldview and you read verse 6, you would probably say, these guys are jinxed. Right? What a string of bad luck. But this was not ill fortune. Their reluctance and indifference to the task that, uh, that God had given them had incurred God's displeasure and judgment. God himself had brought this about. Look at verses 9 to 11. He says, you looked for much and behold, it came to little. When you brought it home, who blew it away? I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. God takes responsibility for their miserable conditions. I did this, he says. Now, you remember that he wanted them to consider their ways? He says, just look around, think about what's happening. This is reminiscent of the covenant curses found in Deuteronomy 11, 13 to 17. Listen to this. He says, if you will obey my commandments, to love the Lord your God, to serve him with all your heart and all your soul, he will give you rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil, and he will give you grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. So even if they managed to bring in a little, God blew it away. He made sure that their poverty remained. He judged his people for their misplaced priorities. Friends, I wonder what you make of that. Here were people who did not have God's interests and God's plan of redemption and God's will as their first priority. They had other things, even good things, all God-given, no doubt. They had those things as their priority and they were very, very busy. Very busy with those things. Now, as Christians, we're not called to build a physical temple but we are instructed specifically to build the church. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit, made up of living stones. You and I, members of the body of Christ. God gives us a clear word in the New Testament to be obedient to the Great Commission, to make disciples of all nations, to teach and exhort and to love. We are to put God's interests and His purposes for His church above our own comforts and conveniences. We're called to speak the truth in love, to not neglect to, to gather, 
to submit, to exhort, to encourage, to deny ourselves for the well-being of others. See, when we read all these commands, all these one another commands in the New Testament, it's easy for us to think that, oh, these commands are for people who have lots of time on their hands. These are for those people who have cars, who live comfortable lives. They need to hear this. But, you know, but I'm busy. But did you see in the text, God expects us to put him first even when other things are screaming for our attention? Even when things are economically pathetic? Brothers and sisters, do you prioritize the church? See, the church is God's plan to reach the nations. And he has called us to live gospel-centered lives in community for his glory that he may be glorified. So is that high on your list? Let me ask you this. What does your life mainly revolve around? You know, a good way to consider your ways is to ask yourself that if, if this church shut down, if this congregation was to dissolve, would your life look any different? What are you so busy with that makes you say to yourself, eh, the time has not yet come for me to disciple someone. The time has not yet come for me to serve. The time has not yet come for me to sacrificially and generously give. What is it for you? Beloved, the Lord is not pleased with you living a shallow and mediocre Christian life. Giving yourselves to all kinds of busyness, to things that don't matter instead of putting him first and his purposes. What is it for you? Which commandments of the Lord of hosts have you set aside because you think it's not the right, right time? Because you're busy with good things, but you're busy. Beloved, consider your ways. Examine your priorities. What are you loving more than Jesus and his church? Do you remember that passage that Ryan read for us from Luke chapter 9? Someone comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And you think, boy, that sounds like commitment. Right? Do you remember what Jesus says? Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What did he mean by that? He means that following him will often mean rejection, having no place to retreat to, no place to lay your head. You see, prioritizing the Lord and his purposes means that you must be willing to obey him even if it results in rejection and hard circumstances. even if it means all of your family members in the Philippines will laugh at you. Even if it means all of your family members in America or India will laugh at you. Next, Jesus says to another, follow me. This one says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. To which Jesus says, let the dead, the spiritually dead, bury their own dead. 
But as for you, you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. That's what following Jesus means. Friends, prioritizing the Lord and his purposes means that even our most cherished earthly relationships and duties take second place. He demands our whole allegiance. He will not share his glory with anyone or anything else. You should know this about your heavenly father. Remember what the hymn writer says? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that would be an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Another guy comes along and he says to Jesus, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. What does Jesus say? <clears throat> no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. See, Jesus knew this man's heart, didn't he? You know, if you're plowing your field and you look back, guess where your plow is going to go? All over the place. Jesus wants your wholehearted devotion. Prioritizing the Lord and his purposes means that we can't be double-minded. Friends, the point here is this. Whose name are you zealous for? Who do you love and whose purposes are you excited about? Do you cherish eternity more than the passing pleasures of this world? Are you zealous for Christ and his body, the church? Are you making investments that will last till eternity? Or is it not the appropriate time for you? You know, one day time will run out. The New Testament tells us the judge is already standing at the door. Beloved, think and act like Christians. Give their careful thought to your ways. You know, some people get really nervous about this kind of obedience that Jesus demands because it's risky. It's risky. So they ask, well, can it be right if it's risky? One author writes, if our all, if our single all-embracing passion is to make much of Christ in life and death, and if the life that magnifies him the most is the life of costly love, then life is risk and risk is right. To run from it is to waste your life. It's to lose it. See, these Israelites were busy with their own little kingdoms, busy with their own needs, legitimate needs, homes, work, food, clothes. The Lord was not pleased with that. Now, as Christians who have been redeemed and united to Christ by faith, we must remember and believe that there is no condemnation for us. Remember that the new covenant has been inaugurated in Christ and God is for us. God is for us. All our blessings are spiritual ones in Christ Jesus. And sure, God is merciful and every good thing comes from his hand. But remember, he is not obligated to give us any of those good things. You and I are not Old Testament Israel so that if we obey, we get a bumper crop of material wealth, and if we disobey, we get covenant curses. No, Christ has obeyed perfectly on our behalf, and his obedience is imputed to us when we trust in him. Remember that he took our failures, and he became a curse for us. In him, we are loved, accepted, and reconciled. So no curses on you, but remember this. Hebrews 12.6 tells us, that the Lord disciplines those he loves 
and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. We're also told that we ought not to grieve the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4.20. Jesus tells us in Revelation 3.19-20, those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. I'll abide with him. Beloved, God will not hesitate in love to discipline his children who have misplaced priorities. So repent. When we repent of our misplaced priorities, we get to enjoy sweet fellowship with the Lord. So these truths should cause our hearts to be watchful, to be sober-minded, to consider our ways and, and be earnest and repent. True Christians will listen, listen to the voice of Christ. We will repent and commune with Him. So if you have your priorities all wrong this morning, if you're convicted of something that I said and you, and you think, okay, I think my priorities are, are, are out of whack, I need to do something with that, then go to Him. Take your heart and turn to Christ. He's faithful and just to forgive. This is exactly the effect that the Word of God had on His remnant. And that brings us to our third point, comfort. God comforts His own with His presence. So He cares, He charges, and now He comforts the repentant. Look at how the people respond to the Lord's rebuke. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. The remnant heard, the remnant obeyed, the remnant feared. The people listened to the word of their covenant God. They obeyed him. They were in awe of his sovereign power. They feared him. Note that the verse says that the whole remnant of the people obeyed. This was the Lord's doing. This was the Lord's doing. Haggai recognized that in this small group of repatriated Jews, much more was required of them than merely being physically present in the land. See, God had to do a work of grace in their hearts. It is significant that in Haggai, the word remnant is applied to them when they respond in obedience to the voice of the Lord their God. The voice of the Lord their God. And did you notice that God was the one behind it all? He took the initiative to speak, to convict them, to reveal, even cause them to bear true fruits of repentance. Friends, such is the response of those whose hearts are truly trusting in the Lord and His promises. Beloved, true believers repent and trust and obey and the Lord comforts them with his presence. The remnant obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and this is what the Lord says. Look at verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you. That's a covenantal blessing. I am with you, declares the Lord. Though the Lord dwelt, he, he, he stayed in the temple with his special presence. You know, this tells us that he's not limited to the temple. He's not limited to the temple. He is with his people. And I think that points forward to the, to the new covenant. And God is going to be with his people 
even without a temple or a different temple, different kind of temple. Friends, God's personal presence, his support and blessing is the very foundation of our consolation, our comfort. The gospel brings us into God's abiding presence through his spirit. And his presence enables us to overcome our anxieties and our fears. His presence stills our souls. This comfort enables us to say no to the false promises of sin. Friends, the gospel promise of the Lord's presence is necessary for us to be encouraged and strengthened and spurred on. That's how the promise of God's presence works. In in giving us our marching orders, what does Jesus say? He says, lo, I am with you always. We know that is true. And we can be encouraged in our battle against sin or in a difficult marriage or even in the planting of a new congregation because of the character of the one who makes that promise, because of what he has already done for us. He has given us his abiding spirit and he will never leave us nor forsake us. But his his comforting presence is not merely a, a soothing balm or a pat on the back. No, it's an empowering presence. It stirs us, it spurs us on to obedience that we might glorify God. See, God moves in the hearts of kings. He ordains world events and he changes the hearts of his people to accomplish his purposes and his glory. Look at verses 14 and 15. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Their God. You see how distance has changed to closeness? Now it's their God. On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king, They worked. See, their repentance born out of God's word through Haggai caused them to labor. It took them 23 days of preparation, but they began to work obediently. Beloved, listening, obedience, fear, and action is what a true change of heart should look like. It's the mark of one who abides in Christ and Christ in him. Does this describe your repentance, your life, your labors in this congregation? Beloved, the Lord wants you to consider your ways. Consider your ways. And here's how you could do that. Number one, start by remembering by what Christ has done for you. Consider how he has led you till this point in your life and offer up a heart of thanksgiving and praise. Number two, examine whether your daily priorities line up with what Jesus expects of you as a disciple. Does your love for him govern your life, the way you use your time, the way you relate to others, the way you spend your money? Examine your priorities. Number three, remember that where you are in life, your particular situation, good or bad, has been ordained by God so that you will draw near to him in faith and obedience. Remember that. Number four, ask yourself, If you are using your situation as an excuse not to obey him. If you are using your situation as an excuse, that God-ordained situation as an excuse to set aside godly priorities. 
If you don't know how to think through that, if you're struggling to work that out, sit down with another mature member and have them evaluate your life. Number five, if you realize that your priorities are disordered, then brother and sister, repent. Ask the Lord for his forgiveness and trust in him for his cleansing and restoring grace. Oh, let me tell you, he has an abundant supply of that for you, fully paid in blood. An abundant supply, plenteous grace with him is found. Grace to cover all my sins. Finally, number six, pray. Pray that he will stir in your heart by the power of his Holy Spirit so that you will prioritize him, that you will put him first and that you would labor faithfully in this congregation. Beloved, rest in Christ. Immerse yourself in his word. Think his thoughts after him and you will learn to have gospel priorities. The one who plans your every hour is also the one who empowers your obedience and strengthens you with his presence. He, this one, will never leave you nor forsake you. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would give your people a single-mindedness for your glory. Grant us grace to love what you command and desire what you promise. May our hearts be fixed on Christ our rock. Abide with us, O Lord, and be glorified through your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.